Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as you come to look at this word written by Paul tonight, we pray that your Holy Spirit would take these words of mine and help us to understand what the glorious message that you bring through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we live in uh, a varied world, don't we? Um, Each one of us have our own lives. We're surrounded by different groups of people. Many, my guess is, that have little or no belief in a God. And many who won't uh, recognise the fact that mankind doesn't live lives that separate them from the true and living perfect God. Well, this was very different to Paul's world, the world that Paul was writing to in this epistle, which included Jewish people, people of the Roman Empire, what he called Gentiles. Like us, though, it was a varied collection of people who had various beliefs, but probably a world that recognised that mankind needed to have relationships with some type of God. But it wasn't to these people that Paul was writing. He was writing to Jewish and Gentile people that formed a part of this group which we would call the Roman Church. And Paul wants to remind them that God is perfect and that mankind is imperfect. And that this God that had made the whole world had made a relationship, a covenant with his people and he had promised them a Messiah that would come and complete this covenant with them, bringing in God's kingdom. And so this is a letter that we've got in front of us tonight. And one of the problems we've got is that when we you know, plan to have, I don't know, eight sermons or so, from it, we divide it up into relatively small chunks. And it's very easy to lose the thread of Paul's reasoning and arguments because one passage builds upon another. And we see this tonight. If you were with us last week, you would have seen how Paul had written in the first half of this chapter that mankind is imperfect compared to God, and mankind can never attain the righteousness of God. In fact, mankind was lost. The situation spiritually, Paul was saying, was desperate. And he repeats that again in our passage tonight in verse 23. And that's the background upon which our passage builds, if you like. So I've titled this sermon the importance of being fair and the nature of God. Now, if you've been with us for a few weeks, you'll have realised that Romans is quite meaty. It's quite difficult stuff because it's mainly theology rather than practical examples of how we are to live our lives. But tonight, we have both within this short section. We have theology, 
and then the outworkings of this for a local community of believers. Now, what the, one of the aims that Paul has got for this church in Rome is that they will be united in faith and not divided by race or belief. So he seeks to show this through asking questions concerning righteousness. So I have three questions for us tonight that hopefully will help us to underpin our understanding of what the passage in front of us actually says. So the first one is this. How much does it matter that God... Oh, don't... Ah, there we go. How much does it matter that God is fair? Now, we live, don't we, in a society where fairness is quite an important thing. We see it at different levels, don't we? Instinctively, we support the idea that in sport, there should be fairness. There's outcry, isn't there, at a football match if the referee appears to be biased or unfair. In law, we instinctively feel that people charged with breaking the law are treated fairly and that judgments are fair. In economic life, we have fair trade. In industrial relations, they are based on the idea of fairness. So I believe the concept of fairness is important to our society. It's important to our communities and to us as individuals. So, within the spiritual moral context, is God fair with regard to our human nature and with regard to judgments? That's a question that often comes up if you're talking to people about faith and the claims of Christ. Well, Paul tries to answer this within this passage. Is God fair to human beings? But secondly... How much does it matter? How much does it matter that God forgives humanity? How much does forgiveness by God affect how we understand the nature of God and do we accept it? Do we accept that that criminal on the cross who died beside Jesus should receive eternal life as well as those who had given most of their lives in service of God? Yet if you remember that story, the criminal only came to faith in the last hour of his life. And do we offer this hope to our friends and community that all can be forgiven and be made right with God at whatever age or part of their life is because God died to save us from the punishment of sins? And then thirdly, how should this look to a local set of believers? How should this look to a local set of believers, i.e. the church? What effect will this forgiveness have upon the community of people who believe that they have been forgiven? Not because of their actions, but because of the action of God, when God comes into their world. Now, to go back to Paul's reality. In Paul's day, there were many religions... And man often had to work hard, often offering expensive gifts to appease their gods. Well, in Christianity and in the Jewish faith, things were very different. 
We read of God coming down to rescue mankind. We read in the Old Testament of how God set up a covenant with his people, how God gave them a way to live and a priesthood who could offer sacrifices on the behalf of the people. And this is seen in the New Testament. It's how God comes to earth to rescue mankind from his separateness from God. And we see this in the death and resurrection of Jesus who died on the cross. So what effects will this have on the collection of people who are known as a church? And what effect does this have on us today? Well, in case you're thinking I'm straying for the passage, please turn now in your Bibles to 1131, page 1131. Now, as I said, it's a dense passage, and some of the words are quite complicated. And there are different translations with different interpretations. But primarily, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, is primarily about the righteousness of God. Look in verses 21, 22, 25, and 26. It's not about us or about humanity. No, it's about the nature of of the living God who is righteous. That means who is perfect. And there are four points that I'd like to draw out from this passage as we look at God's righteousness as given in these verses. So, the righteousness of God. The first point is this, the witness to God's righteousness. The witness to God's righteousness. How do we know that God is righteous, in other words? Well, if you look in chapter 3, verse 21, look what it says. It says this, But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Now, in other words, what it's saying here is, the saving righteousness and grace of God has been shown through the Old Testament times. The prophets of the Old Testament show the righteousness of God. Now, the Jewish people who were found within this Roman church would have known of this from their scriptures and from the traditions. The Gentiles within the church might not have known of this so much, though. And we all need to be reminded of these facts. The law of God was given to the people of God through Moses, and it acts both in a positive way and a negative way. It acts in a positive and a negative way. Positively, it bears witness to the righteousness of God. It points out to us what God expects and what it means to be righteous in our lives. Negatively, it shows us that the people of God, the Jews, couldn't work themselves into righteousness. So not only do we see the evidence from the law, but we also see it from the words and teachings of the prophets during the Old Testament times. But not only do we have the witnesses from the Old Testament, Paul declares that the very gospel of God points us towards this. If you look back into chapter 1, verse 17, Paul writes this, For in the gospel... A righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. 
In other words, we see the outworkings of the righteousness in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and faith in this. Now, this isn't a new kind of righteousness. That's different from the Old Testament one. But rather, the Old Testament points towards it. So what's this got to do with us and the world in which we live? Well, surely, it should affect the way we live, the way we speak, in our outreach. There must be ways of showing the nature of this God, this God that's perfect compared to the brokenness of us and the world in which we live. And how we can become righteous is only possible through the work of God, through God dying on the cross to take our place in punishment for our sin. So that was the first point then, the witness to the righteousness of God. The second point is this, the recipient of this righteousness, the recipients of this righteousness. So how does this righteousness come to people? That's the question, isn't it? How do we become righteous? How can we help each one of us to become righteous? We'll look at verse 22. Now, in verse 22, we have one of these situations where there are issues concerning the translation from the original text. The Bible that you have in front of you is an NIV translation, and it says this. It says, This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. This means we receive righteousness by bowing our knees in humility to Jesus with the obedience of faith. We submit to the death of Jesus on the cross for our sins and we believe in faith that he has done this for our broken lives. Now other translations make a slightly different statement. One of them says this. This translation says, this righteousness from God through the faith of Jesus Christ. That means by the faithful actions of Jesus Christ through dying on the cross, we can come into righteousness. Jesus was faithful. He submitted voluntary to the plan of God for the rescue of humanity. And this meant that Jesus willingly submitted to the plan of separation from God, taking the punishment for all sin on that cross. Now, whichever of those meanings you take, it doesn't really matter because the important thing to note is that this is for all who believe. Yes, belief is necessary. Belief in Jesus as the Son of God who took that punishment for our sins. Belief that Jesus died, defeated death and rose again. But the important point to note is that that needs to take action needs to be taken by each individual person to submit to him and to accept his actions. But because of this, this means that there is no distinction between human beings, Jew or Gentile, male or female, rich or poor, well-educated or poorly educated, because all have sinned, all need the death of Jesus to take that price for our sins. And so the recipients can all share together in the prospects for the future. We are all sinners and therefore lack the glory of God. But because of God's faithfulness 
and obedience, those that have faith in Jesus will one day shine with the same glory as Christ. And that's God's grace. That's the positive and marvellous message we have tonight from these verses 21 to 25. And we read of it here that that can only come through faith in Jesus and his death on the cross. So that's the recipients, people who believe in Jesus. But what about the source of the righteousness? The source of the righteousness. We'll look at 24 and 25 again. We've already seen that Paul states, God is a righteous God, a God that cannot look at sin and evil. And therefore there was only one way that God could nullify the effects of sin, and that is by a sacrifice. And we saw earlier that in the Old Testament, God provided this to be possible through sacrifices done by priests on behalf of the people. However, these sacrifices weren't perfect, so they had to be repeated time and time again. So God's plan was there should be one and only perfect sacrifice. And that comes from only one possibility, and that is from a perfect being, and that was God, Jesus incarnate. And so this is what the atonement is all about in verse 24 and 25. This atonement is a sacrifice that comes from God's grace. It's 100% grace and not by any works that we can do. Now it's important that we remember the nature of this God and the nature of his perfection. And because of his perfection, God hates sin and the effects of sin. And this leads to his anger and his wrath. So it's a question of wrath. God's wrath concerning sin. And because God is perfect and can't stand sin, God's wrath over the sinful action is taken by Jesus on the cross. And so what we have here is that God hates sin and God has a right to be angry over sin because it separates people from his perfectness. And so we see in Jesus' sacrifice the grace of God, the grace that we can be saved, not by any action that we can do. Now, if we soften God's wrath against sin, as some would want us to do, then we lessen and minimise this sacrifice of the cross. Because in the cross we see Jesus as God himself, taking upon God the self-substitution that pays the penalty that we deserve. And so we see, therefore, the nature of the sacrifice that Jesus made. This perfect God was sacrificed on the cross to take the punishment for our sins. And so when we grasp the magnitude of God's action, and the grace of what's happening at the cross, this will certainly encourage us to show the love of God to those that don't know this. And as a result, as we heard on Wednesday night, evangelism will happen. So that's the source of the righteousness. The first, fourth point, what's the proof of this righteousness? 
the proof of this righteousness. Well, look in verses 25 and 26. I started with a question. Is God fair and just? Is God fair and just? And uh, we get many questions when we talk to people about God. They say he can't be just because there's no, so much evil in the world. Well, is God fair and just? Well, these two verses show that God is fair and just. The cross proves that God is fair to forgive because God substitutes himself on the cross for the sinner so that the justice of God is satisfied and the mercy of God is complete. This is the truth that lies at the heart of this passage. This is the truth that lies at the heart of the passage. God is right to rescue sinners because he has punished sinners at the cross. In Jesus, he punished every sinner who is united with Jesus by faith. He punished my sin and myself so that I can rejoice that Jesus declares me righteous by his death on the cross. That's the positive message that's coming from this passage tonight. So how then can we finish this difficult passage? Remember my statement about Paul wanting a united church. Well, if we look at verses 27 through to 30, and he starts it off by saying, where there, where there, where then is boasting? Where then is boasting? Paul wants them to live in harmony. Surely that's a great aim for any preacher, any pastor to have for their church. And we would love this church, wouldn't we, to be united, living in harmony. Well, Paul knows that this is only possible if they follow the doctrine of justification by faith. Because this doctrine drives us to our knees and to humility. Where every person is at level zero with regards to righteousness. Remember, Paul writes, all have sinned before God, therefore we are all equal before God. So there's no room for boasting and pride. All boasting is out of order, except boasting in what Jesus has done for me, not what I've done for God. Boasting is the religion of Cain and leads to death. So what about the law then? in verse 27. Well, one commentator said this, the aim of the law of God is not to make religious, religious insiders feel better about themselves, but to move us all to repentance, humbled under the grace together of the one God together. Remember, Paul's reality is that there is only one God which means there's only one means of justification. This one God unites a church under his one means of justification and drives that church into his one world in which boasting is excluded. So then as we're here together, let's humble ourselves under this grace of God, the grace of God that led to the death of God himself upon the cross. Let us kneel before this cross of Jesus as we come to take our communion later on in the service. Let's confess our sins. Let's thank Jesus for taking the punishment for them and believe 
that he has done this for us because then we will be with him in eternity and in glory. Amen.